If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 5, 6, right around that area in Scripture. And we, our goal today is to finish Deuteronomy. We may not quite finish it, but we're going to, we pretty much think we'll get done with Deuteronomy. We may have to skip some stuff or move quickly at points, but we'll, we try to get, we'll try to get to the very end of Deuteronomy today. And then our plan for next Sunday, Lord willing, is to really quickly, and I do mean very quickly, overview uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and the first six chapters of 2 Samuel, and that's going to be, we want to do that in 10 minutes or so, and then get to 2 Samuel 7, which is a major, major issue where God's promise of covenant to David is made, which is obviously very significant in the whole storyline of the scripture, and it will get us to the Davidic covenant. So uh, that's our plan, and uh, there's more, as usual, there's more to cover than we probably have time for today, but we will try our best. And Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for yet another opportunity to study your word. Uh, Lord, the, the, the privilege that we have to do this is unspeakably great. And Lord, through our time, we pray that you would teach us, uh, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, make us wise to the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and Lord, as we pray for that, Lord, help us make sense of the, the big picture of the Bible, how we put it together, how covenant is central to that. Um, Lord, just give us wisdom and clarity as up here as we, as we teach, Lord, and help all of us to uh, have ears to hear uh, and, and eyes to see uh, what your word is clearly showing. Lord, help us uh, appreciate uh, all that you have done, are doing, and will do, and even more the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Greg, uh, these first couple slides, we're just kind of, again, refreshing ourselves as to what's going on here. And can you help us with these yes. two, with uh, kind of what is progressive covenantalism? Again, the basic idea, and then we'll jump into Deuteronomy. Yeah, so we started with this at the beginning. We've referenced it at least one other time. But when we think about progressive covenantalism, what's, a, what's an easy uh, maybe flow to, uh, to understand this, okay? Uh, number one, five, and again, I didn't plan this, it just came out, five points of progressive covenantalism. Uh, first point, one, one obvious, the Bible is God's story. I mean, that, that should be obvious, but we need to hear that. When we read this book, it is God's story. Number two, God's story is about God's kingdom. You, like the, from the moment scripture starts, God is building his kingdom. And kingdom is a central, like, driving theme throughout the entire book. It ends with what? God's people in the presence of God in his eternal kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. So, but what is God's kingdom about? That's what we need to know. God's kingdom is about God and his people. I mean, we have the, the, the outline, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing, but essentially God's kingdom is about God and his people. Okay? Following, following from that number four is this. God's kingdom is carried, shaped, and implemented through God's covenants progressively throughout history. And so kingdom is always tied to covenant. It's never separated from it. Wherever you have a kingdom, you have a covenant in place. And the next slide we're going to look at in just a sec is going to show that hopefully a little more clearly. But God's kingdom is always tied to God's covenant. Hence, the, the other way of thinking about progressive covenantalism is kingdom through covenant. Okay? And number five it all sums up in Jesus, obviously, but God's story, God's kingdom, God's covenants are fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of God's son, Jesus Christ. And so just really big 150,000 foot view. This is the space view. How do you make sense of progressive covenantalism? That's how. Next slide here. This, this is something Mark and I were talking about, and it was just, it was very helpful to, to plug covenant into the kind of the kingdom structure that we've been, that Mark has mentioned more times than I can count, you know, <laughs> preaching, which is good though. That's not a critique. Um, you've mentioned this so many times from the pulpit and other, other places, and we've done that. Um, but we need to see covenant and kingdom together in this. So typically we think the kingdom is God's people, God's place, God's rule, God's people experiencing God's blessing. But let's plug in covenant here. And this isn't artificial. Like this, this, the kingdom only makes sense with covenant here, okay? So you've got um, God's people. Who are they? They are his covenant people. They're his covenant people, meaning if you're not in God's covenant, you're not God's people. Um, next point there, God's place is what place? It's the covenantally promised defined, established land for his covenant people to dwell in. 
It's not just for anyone anywhere. It's for his covenant people. And it's a specific place that God has only promised through the covenant. Third, his rule is his covenantally established rule over his covenant people. Yes, God is the, the you know, as creator, he's the sovereign king over everything. So in, the, in one big sense, you know, the whole universe is the kingdom of God, but that's not the story of scripture. The story of scripture is God's kingdom on earth, God's kingdom with his people. And so that's why, why I say his rule here specifically, it's covenantally established over his covenant people. Only the people of God live in a special relationship with God by which they, they follow his rules, they obey his laws, God is you know, dwelling with them and all of that. And lastly, God's blessings are covenantally confined and given only to his covenant people. As we look through Deuteronomy, we're going to see this, the curses and the blessings, that's confined to the covenant people. That's not for the rest of the world. It's, it's confined to that. Now, we could say in light of the covenant with creation that we talked about, you know, all people are in a broken covenant relationship with God because of what Adam did. And so we all sinned in him. And so we're all su suffering the covenant curse of death in that sense. But when we read the covenant that God made with Israel, the Mosaic covenant, all the blessings and curses are confined to Israel to God's covenant people. And so I hope that's helpful to kind of see that because when we talk kingdom, we, we have to think only through a covenant. And same thing, when we think covenant, that's the kind of the mediating document, the mediating relationship between God and his people. You can't have a covenant that's not tied to a kingdom, and you can't have a kingdom that's not being directed and driven by a covenant. Uh, that's, that's good. So uh, we're going to kind of keep, keep with what we're talking about here as we look at Deuteronomy. Again, just to remind you, uh, kind of an oversimplified outline of Deuteronomy is first four chapters look back on the past. Remember, the parent generation that wandered in the wilderness and sinned and died. That's a warning not to be like them. The present is most of the book, 5 to 26, and there are a lot of commands in regards to the covenant that must be obeyed for blessing, or rather, uh, if they disobey, there will be curse. Uh, chapter, chapters 27 to 34 look to the future uh, and look at the consequences again of what could happen, whether they keep the covenant or not. So I want to look at a new chart here. I know we've got charts coming at you in different directions, but here's another chart. This is from John Mead, who's an Old Testament scholar. Uh, it, we found it through Peter Gentry's work. But just here, just look at it. We're going to come back to this slide several times in the next few minutes here. At least that's the plan. The first one, so he, he's breaking down really the end of chapter 4, so think basically chapters 5 through 11 is pretty much what he's covering here in, these, in this outline. And you see the word covenant is in all the parts of how he breaks it down. And we just want to show you samples of these as we go. So the first one we won't look at for, we won't even really look at right now. It's the Ten Commandments. We know those are so familiar, we won't spend a lot of time right now on the Ten Commandments. But uh, for, the, for part A, basic principle of covenant relationship is having no other gods, don't murder, etc. Keep these. That's the basic covenant requirement. But let's move into some more less familiar territory, at least probably for a lot of us, would be number, uh, B here. Measures for maintaining the covenant relationship. Measures for maintaining the covenant relationship is chapter 6. If you have your Bible open, look at chapter 6. I know we, we spent time on this last week. We'll just read it here again. Verse 4 is such a central verse for the Mosaic Covenant and really for all of the Bible. And we know Jesus quotes this in the New Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your uh, might. So in chapter 6, we are seeing complete devotion to the Lord. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I want to add some things in just to keep it interesting as we go. Just want to mention this. This is not a main point, but I just thought I would add it here. In Deuteronomy 6, 8, you, say, you see God says here about the law, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And I know some people in the Jewish world take that literally. They wear these things literally on their forehead. You've probably seen, or they might wear it around their wrist with scripture contained in it. Uh, that's taking this text overly literally. Uh, I think here what's being said is that our mind, our, our, our excuse me, our, our, between our eyes would represent our mind, devoted to the Lord, loving it with our mind. And our hand represents our body, our activity, loving it with our strength, loving it with all that we are. So I think that if it's bound on our hand and in our eyes, it's representing our full devotion to the Lord. And again, this is just a little side comment just to keep things interesting. I think that the, the mark of the beast in Revelation is sort of seen as the anti this. So this is the Shema, that you're completely devoted to the Lord in mind and in action, uh, forehead and hand. And I think the mark of the beast is meant to be a symbolic anti-Shema, an anti-devotion to the Lord. If you look at Revelation 13, 
Uh, it might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, this is the beast, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So again, you see here, the hand and the forehead are again, the, this is not about a literal tattoo you get on your forehead or a microchip you get implanted into your wrist. I don't think that's what's being referred to. I think it's a symbolic way of saying, instead of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love the world with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're devoted to the beast with your mind and with your actions, not the Lord. So it's the, it's the opposite of loving God with all your heart. It's being devoted to the things uh, of this world. And G.K. Beale helpfully, just I want to quote him here, on, he's great on Revelation. He says, God told Israel that the Torah was to be a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead to remind them continually of their commitment and loyalty to God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 8. The forehead represents ideological commitment, what we believe, and the hand, the practical outworking of that commitment. Uh, likewise, the beast marks on the foreheads and the hands of his worshipers. It refers to their loyal, uh, consistent, and wholehearted commitment to him. So again, the question is, who is our Lord? Who is our Savior? Who are we looking to? Also, just want to mention in passing, in these chapters of Deuteronomy, if you look at these three verses on the screen of these chapters of Deuteronomy, let's quote the verses. 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve. Implication, and no one else, right? You should serve the Lord only. Deuteronomy 6.16, 6, you should not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. Talking about the wilderness generation. Deuteronomy 8.3, and He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that, you, um, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives from every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, as a New Testament Christian, we probably recognize those three verses, because those are the same three verses Jesus quotes in the temptations from the 40 days with, the serpent, with, with Satan in the wilderness. And you remember here, Moses is recounting the wilderness generation and how they failed. And is Jesus in the wilderness being tempted about food and testing God and worshiping false gods, just like Israel? Yes, but he is the true Israel who doesn't fail. He's the one who succeeds. So I won't read the verses now, but I've got them on the screen. Jesus quotes it here in response to Satan, Deuteronomy. Again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, in Matthew 4, you, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus goes to this part of Deuteronomy all three times. He responds to Satan, which is all about being fully devoted to the Lord. Next section here on the chart is chapter 7. So if you can turn to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And this is, the implications here are, this is the implications of a covenant relationship. And for the sake of time, I'll just, I'll make this a little shorter here. Look, look at verse 6. This is a beautiful passage from Deuteronomy 7. It's a great text on election. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then the question might come to the mind of Israel, Lord, why did you choose us? And we might be tempted to give a me-centered answer, like I was better, I was stronger, I was wiser, right? You could give that kind of answer. Is that why God chose Israel? Because they were better, stronger, wiser, richer? Well, let's see, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples, but it, was, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, do you see the answer to the question? Why did the Lord choose Israel and love Israel? The answer is the Lord chose to love them because he chose to love them. That's the logic of the text. I love you because I set my heart on you and loved you and chose you. That's the answer. Well, which is not an answer, but it is a glorious answer. In other words, it's unconditional election that we spent so much time on. God did not look at the world and figure out the best and brightest people group, the strongest people group. He would have chosen Egypt long before he chose Israel, if that was what God was doing. He would have chosen Assyria or Babylon or some great empire. But no, God chose the least, the least likely, the least lovely, the least respectable people. He chose the, the, the people who would become slaves in, in Egypt for 400 years. He chose them. Why? Not because of anything in you, but because I love you. That's why he chose you. And so, and he's keeping the promises to the forefathers, which, well, why did he make promises to the forefathers? Because he chose them, because he loves them. So when you get to the bottom, it's, you, you ever heard the, the illustration of like, uh, in, in some pagan worldviews, they used to say, you know, back in the day that the earth is on the back of a turtle. You heard this? And then the, the kid would ask his dad, well, dad, what's the turtle standing, if, if there's a giant turtle holding the world up, what's the turtle standing on? And then they used to say, well, there's another turtle underneath that turtle. 
And the kid starts getting a little confused, as we all do. And the kid goes, what's underneath? And then the dad just finally says, well, son, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> In other words, it's just an infinite number of turtles. There's no bottom. Well, if you take it back to election here, uh, I heard, I think it was, uh, it, I think it was, uh, Tom Schreiner may have said there. I don't know who said this. Jim Hamilton talking about Tom oh, Jim, Jim, Thank you. Jim Hamilton yeah, I think mentioned that's this. that's what it was. Yes, yeah. that's right. He said, when it comes to election, when you say, God, why did you choose me? It's love all the way down. There's no reason in me why God chose me. It's, it's love all the way down. It's just infinite, undeserved uh, love going all the way yeah. to the bottom. So the, the covenant God enters into with his people is one of unconditional election. It's one of sheer grace. Any, any yeah. words about this, Greg? Well, I mean, it's a great illustration, love all the way down. And we, we have to draw the implication from that then. Um, love is the ultimate cause of why Israel was God's people. It wasn't the other way around. God didn't start loving Israel because they said, hey, we want to be your people, love us. It was, no, they became his people because he loved them. God, and, and there's the other, the other thing I think is practical for this. Israel uh, wasn't chosen by God because Israel chose God first. I mean, can we just say that? Like, Israel did not choose God first. God chose Israel before Israel was even Israel. There was no mm -hmm. Israel. And God chose this nation that would come from Abraham long before. And then, you know, he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because he'd already made a choice in eternity past to choose them and make them his people and, you know, bring the nation of Israel through them. And so, like, it's utterly humbling when we think about this. Like, it doesn't negate our responsibility as far as we're concerned. We still have to believe. We still have to trust and all that. But underneath all of that is God's sovereign electing choice. And Scripture is so clear on that. Um, and, and it shouldn't cause us to be like, well, that's not fair, whatever. It should cause us to be, wow, I don't deserve this, but I know it's true uh, I, what, what can I do but live for this God who has shown me such favor and grace that I don't deserve? Uh, amen. And that, this will pick right up with our next part. So if you turn to chapter 8, uh, and I'll look back on the screen, you can see an outline here for D. Uh, chapter 8, you can summarize it. Warnings against forgetting the covenant relationship. Warning, uh, warning against forgetting this gracious God. So look at chapter 8, verse 2 of Deuteronomy. So look at this idea of not forgetting or remembering God. We need to remember him. 8-2, uh, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Skip to verse 11. Take care lest you forget. So verse 2 said, remember what God has done in faithfulness. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full... And have built good houses and live in them. And when you've multiplied, it talks about animals, silver and gold is multiplied. All that you have is multiplied. Verse 14, what's the temptation? Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Verse 18, you shall remember, here it is again, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. But you see here, going along with God's choosing us and being gracious to us and saving us, that should create a certain kind of character in us which is we don't start thinking, well, the reason why, uh, you know, a Christian might be tempted to think, well, I, I've got other people I know who've wrecked their lives in sin, and I haven't maybe completely wrecked my life in sin. Of course, we all are hell-deserving sinners, but we might look around and say, hey, I'm doing a little bit better than this person. I seem to be doing a little bit better than this person. I kind of feel good about myself. As soon as we start thinking that way, we have forgotten. We've forgotten what the Lord has done, because apart from God's inter, intervening grace, we would all be uh, completely bankrupt in sin. That's what we would all be remaining for all of eternity. But because God has saved us, we will, our hearts will not be lifted up. So great thoughts here about the, how what God has done for us should be humbling, I think, and help us to remember his graciousness. Well, it goes to what Paul talks about in uh, Philippians, is it chapter 2? Uh, you know, we, we love in chapter 1, rightly, when Paul says... Um, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. But we get in verse chapter 2, verse 13, when Paul says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Meaning God doesn't just begin a good work, leave it off, and then come back and finish it at the end. He begins a work. He's always working, and then he finishes his work. Mm -hmm. And the work that he's doing now, any willing for God. I mean, this is what Paul says, chapter 2, verse 13. Any willing that we have for God, any working that we do for God, is ultimately traced back to who? God's work in us. So there is no room for boasting. There's absolutely no room for boasting. Like, look at what I did. I'm, man, I, you know, I... I can look down on you because, you know, I, look what I did with my Christian life and, you know, look what you're not doing with yours. Anything we do for God, any desire for God that we have is first traced back to God's work in us. That is what Paul clearly, clearly teaches, and it eliminates all boasting. Like, there can be no boasting when we understand, again, this doesn't eliminate our responsibility because, you know, Paul says, work this out, not like work for it, but work it out, come to terms with it, realize what this means, put it into practice. But at the end of the day, we can't boast at all. Mm -hmm. And if we, if, if we find ourselves boasting, we're doing exactly what Moses said, and we're going clearly, or what Moses said we shouldn't do, and going clearly against what, what Paul says here. Like, if God is the one who's the ultimate source, then we do not boast in us, we boast in God. And, and we, we, we say, if I do anything good for the Lord, I have to attribute it to him. I have to give praise to him because it would not ultimately come from me. No, absolutely. And we're going to keep on the same idea. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 this time. If you look at E on the screen, you've got this idea of failures in covenant relationship, failures in Israel's past. And now let's look at a sampling, chapter 9, verse 4. If you've got uh, that in front of you, 9-4, here's what Paul says. It's amazing, the wording here. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, the, the people of the land, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these late nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Verse 5, not because of your own righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. Uh, look at verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. I love this. For you are a stubborn people. So in, in case you missed the point here, it's not because of what you've done, Israel. It's not your moral accomplishments. It's my grace and also my judgment on the peoples of the land. But I just want to add this. I thought this was fascinating. A commentator pointed this out a few years ago, and I had not thought about this. You remember Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about not seeking righteousness according to the law, but he says Christ is our righteousness by faith. And then right after that, Paul says this, look, look at this, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to the heavens, etc. that's to bring Christ down, but with the heart you believe and are justified. I don't think that's an accident that he says, don't say in your heart. I think he's echoing Deuteronomy. Where he, the text of Deuteronomy says, don't say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness that God has saved me. And then Paul echoes that and says, yeah, don't say in your heart, it's about what I'm doing. No, just believe with your heart and you're justified. I think he's echoing that idea. And um, Deuteronomy chapter 9, okay, one more thing on the screen here, is that Paul, I mean, Moses also reminds the people of their failure again of the golden calf. He tells the story again. I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. Just a little interesting parallel. Remember the Galatians had so quickly turned aside from the gospel after Paul left them? I think Paul is echoing, again, this language of turning aside quickly from the way of the Lord in Galatians 1, when he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So again, you hear Paul echoing Old Testament language as he is encouraging and even rebuking uh, the churches. Okay, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Uh, look here at, this is really the middle of 10, uh, verses 12 to 22. The restoration to covenant relationship. We have this wonderful um, idea here, verse 15 of chapter 10. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, uh, you above all peoples as you are this day. And then here's the command, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And you will of course hear that language played out through the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament. All right, for the sake of time, we're almost done with this section. Chapter 11. This is choices required by covenant relationship, and you get a sampling of where Deuteronomy is going to end, which is with blessings and curses. I'll just give a sample, verse 26 of chapter 11. I, I know we're skipping the vast majority, but just uh, chapter 11, verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. 
and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside to the way that I'm, uh, from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods uh, that you have not known. So, Greg, I think here we're seeing massive I- issue here. Is it's covenantal language, and it's about commitment to the Lord above all else. And if mm-hmm. there is failure in that, there is going to be repercussion that follows in the, in the form of judgment. Yeah. A- anything else on these opening chapters before we jump into 12 to 26? Um, w- one thing, and it's by way of like anticipation, because you know obviously we're going towards the new covenant and our hope that's in Christ. As we start going through this, like there's, a, there's so much that's applicable to us as Christians, but at the same time, we're looking at the, the promises and the warnings, the, the, the threats and the curses, and it should start to, to dawn on us like that this is not something we can ultimately do on our own. Like if it's up to us, this is going to fail. Like, and, and, you know, with all the blessings that Israel has, with all that God has given them, the, you know, the priesthood, the, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, you know, and, and later on, as we're going to see the king and all of that, like, if it's up to us, even in the best of circumstances, we're going to blow it. We are absolutely going to blow it. Um, and so even as we look at all this, this should be saying we need somebody who can do what we can't do. Because if we don't have somebody to do that, we're going to be in big trouble. And that leads us back to the promise that we looked at way back in Genesis 3 when God spoke to the serpent. And he said the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We are waiting for that individual to come because somehow, if if we're thinking rightly, we're building on just how bad off we are, how messed up we are. He's got to come and do something even like this, all this obedience to God, which is being detailed out in all these ways. When we think about this promised seed who's going to be the serpent crusher, part of what he's going to do is to obey God as humanity should. Like we don't understand all that that's going to look like just yet, but there should be something in us that says we need to obey God. Our life depends on obedience, but we can't give what we know we should give. And unless God provides something else, we're going to be in big trouble. That's right. So we've got to overview a large section. All we can do again is just pick a few highlights as we go. So back to our outline, we're at the present section and five to 26 is split in these two parts. Chapters 12 to 26 is a huge portion of the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, for us as people today reading it, it can be the part that's a little more tedious to read. <laughs> there are scores and scores of commands. Uh, we argued, and again, there's debate about the details of this, but we argued using James Hamilton's outline here that the Ten Commandments may form sort of a generalized table of contents for much of what comes through these chapters. I think that there's, I, I don't want to put this, I don't want to. Sh- push this too far. I don't think it's an exact 100% one-to-one, but generally, the general topics of the Ten Commandments form the outline of these chapters, and we're just going to pick some major ideas to look at as we go. So, here we go. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. You can see here we're getting into a new section, and it's getting into all the nitty-gritty commands. So, chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you, that you shall be careful to do in the land the Lord has given you to possess. If you skip all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So we're getting ready for a lot of commands to come our way. That's the setting here. Let me just show a couple highlights here. Uh, the phraseology, if you look at verse 8 of this chapter, uh, you shall not do according to all that we are uh, doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. So you may, you may be used to that phrase, doing what is right in your own eyes. This is how later books of the Bible are echoing the warnings here of Deuteronomy. So the summary verse, the last verse of Judges, is this verse right here. The last verse summarizes the whole book of Judges very easily. Uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So again, picking up the language of Deuteronomy, the, the, the language of don't be this way, Judges says, but when Israel took the land, what did they do? They did exactly what Deuteronomy said not to do. They were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And we're going to look now at a few things that run through these chapters of Deuteronomy 12 to 26 that are very important. These are three big things that that come out pretty clearly. Temple, king, and prophet. So just stick with us here for a moment. Look at chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 and 11. But, whenever, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, verse 11, then to the place, 
So now we're talking about a very specific location. It's going to end up being Jerusalem. But to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present. Are you seeing way before David takes Jerusalem and, and then Solomon builds the temple, are you seeing the precursors of that? Yeah, where else do you bring sacrifices but where this tabernacle eventually temple is going to be? And God is going to choose the location and he's going to put his name there. This will eventually become the Jerusalem temple. This is, again, written way ahead of time. Uh, next thing would be the king. Deuteronomy 17. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 17. And Greg, can you read for us verses 14 to 17? Yeah. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Can you finish the chapter? I, I yeah, want to hear these next couple to. verses too. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read, it in, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his, in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Yeah, Greg, I like some of your thoughts here about what's going on here. I'll just say one thing is verses 18 to 20 that we just read, that's an amazing thing. So the king was called to get his own copy and to write his own copy of the law. Write it by hand, right? There's no copy machine. There's no printer. There's no, he's got to write this thing by hand, every word by himself. He's then supposed to read that text of the law every single day of his life to be careful to do all that's written in it. And Don Carson said, if just those, Don Carson said, if just those three verses of the Old Testament had been obeyed, all of Israel's history would have been different. Mm -hmm. If just the kings had done what those three verses say, write your own Bible, your own law, and then read it every day. Have your devotions every day, and then be careful to do what it says. All of Israel's history would have been different. But because those three verses were not obeyed, uh, it was not. Any other any, any thoughts here about the warnings and, and commands here to the king? Uh, well, I mean, again, if, if, if we remember this when we come into First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and the, the mm -hmm. books of the Chronicles, like you, you see where the kings go wrong. Even the best kings. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, um, you know, who followed the Lord wholeheartedly. But... Look at the end of verse 17, or verse 17, he shall not acquire many mm -hmm. wives for himself. King David had an Achilles heel, if you will, and it was, he loved women. He had many, many wives. Not as many as Solomon, obviously, but David had more wives. And what does that indicate? A lack of self-control, a lack, there, there's a vulnerability there. And what ultimately got David in the biggest trouble? It was women. His lust for women. Um, not Bathsheba in and of herself, but his own lust. Um, and because he was used to getting more women, he didn't, wasn't content with just one wife. He had to have another wife and another wife. He'd do this great deed, and he'd get a wife from there. I mean, you think of Abigail, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the former wife of Nabal, the, the really bad dude who died. Um, you know, God killed Nabal, and then what happened? David took Abigail. So, I mean, he, he, he multiplied wives to himself. And so there was a vulnerability there that he thought I can just, I can have somebody. Um, and so he, David, as godly as he was, lived in perpetual disobedience to verse 17. I mean, he did. And Solomon even more so. And you think what, what was one of the things that happened in Solomon's reign? One, uh, he multiplied horses. I think they had stables for 12,000 horses. Mm -hmm. um, again, he's thinking, well, this is security. This right. is, you know, mounted cavalry in that day where if you had a good mounted cavalry, you were, you were ready for battle. Like you had an advantage. And Solomon's thinking that in his wisdom. Um, and also, um, you know, Solomon multiplied wives and silver was so common in his day that nobody even thought about it. 
Um, again, not that, that having an abundance is necessarily wrong, but you start to see in these kings a disobedience to what God said for kings. Um, and at root, I think, is verses 18 through 20, mm-hmm. is they did not treasure God's word and therefore treasure God above all. They, they put other things that were co- competitors for their devotion and allegiance to God. And down the road, that's what ended up making so much trouble um, for them. Yeah, and just going with that, you don't have to turn there. We, we know Psalm 1, uh, but the, the, the book of Psalms, it wouldn't be wrong to say that this is largely, a lot of these are written by David. We know that. And it, a lot of these are about the Messianic king and the Davidic mm-hmm. king. It's no accident that the first Psalm, which you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, etc., but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree, etc. Th- that is what the king was supposed to be. Psalm 1 is supposed to be the Davidic king. He's supposed to be just like that. He's got his own copy of the law. He reads it all the time. He's delighting in it. He loves it. It gives him roots so that when, when there's a dry season, he's got, he's got nourishment down in, the, in, in Christ and in, in, in God. But instead, uh, even the best of kings fell short of the standard here. And we need one who is going to ultimately be a man who fulfills the law. Who's the king, the son of David, who's going to fulfill the law? There's only one, right? It, it, it's Jesus. He, he's the one who truly fulfills the law in every uh, one of its facets. And we could say, I mean, when, when he quoted Deuteronomy to Satan in the wilderness, and he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was, in essence, affirming, embracing, and obeying verses 18 through 20. Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, bread, I think, in one sense, can represent so many other things that we think we have to have to live. Mm-hmm. And, Je- you know, and what did Jesus do? He said, no, the only necessary thing is the word of God. Everything else comes after that. Um, and so, you know, in saying that, he is in himself obeying perfectly for us what is required here of treasuring, internalizing, and living wholeheartedly according to the law. Just one more thing on that. With this high view of God's word, what's amazing is you can break it down. You've got Moses in the Old Testament under inspiration saying these are the very words that come out of the mouth of God. These are God's words. Talking about scripture, ultimately. And then you've got Jesus in the New Testament quoting Moses and agreeing with him and saying, yes, these are the very words that come out of the mouth of God. These are God's very words. Scripture, it's the very words of God. And then you got Paul coming after Jesus in 2 Timothy 3 saying, these words are God-breathed. The, the word theanustos, the, 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 the words that come, the, the breath of God, God-breathed words. And so do you, do you see a, a pattern here? Moses says the words that come out of God's mouth. Jesus says the words that come out of God's mouth. Paul says the words that are God-breathed coming out of his mouth. Do we see a consistency across the canon from Deuteronomy to Matthew to 2 Timothy where all, they're all saying the same thing. God's words are, his, God's scripture is God's very word, and we need it for life and breath and everything. We need it for survival and for thriving. Well, I mean, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, yeah. what? They didn't live by God's word. They lived by the word of a creature, um, and therefore they didn't trust God. Um, and, uh, you know, all the problems came in, in, into the world because of that. I mean, there was more going on than just that, but even in, in the garden, we see God created us to live by what he says. What he says determines and drives everything. And whenever we think we can't trust what he said, or maybe there's more to what he said, or maybe he's holding out on us beyond what he said, that every single time mm-hmm. we, we say God's word is not enough, that's when we get in trouble. Every single time. Every single time. That doesn't mean we're going to understand it perfectly. That doesn't mean you know that. But it does mean that whether we understand it perfectly or not, we're going to say, this is what God said, and I'm going to stick to this because if, if I don't, I, 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 I put myself in a very dangerous position. Every time we go away from God's word, it leads to sin, chaos, heartache, death, and so many other horrible things. So still the same, we're still in the same thought, but look at Deuteronomy 18. And this, this is an amazing verse. Again, it's quoted, referenced in the New Testament as well. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God, this is the promise here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a Moses-like prophet from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay, just just real quick, you can look at the screen, this might be easier to see this really quick. This is how Deuteronomy comes to an end. Look at the end of Deuteronomy right here. Deuteronomy 34.10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. 
uh, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. Um, is that not fascinating? So Israel is looking for this prophet like Moses, this, this, this greater Moses who's coming, and he still hasn't come. Joshua was not him, all right, because Joshua was alive at this point, and they're not, Joshua was not the one. So who is this one? Well, you know John 1, 21. They're talking to John the Baptist, the Pharisees. They asked John the Baptist, what are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. The prophet is the Moses-like prophet who's going to come and be greater than Moses. And then you, Greg, you helped me find this verse. I couldn't find this verse, and Greg, Greg helped me find it. Acts chapter 3, uh, I think Peter's the one preaching here. Uh, verse 22, uh, they're quoting here. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel... And those who came after him have also proclaimed these days, and he goes on to speak about the servant of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is that prophet greater than Moses who is going to come uh, and bring the deliverance that we, that we desperately need. Okay, now we're going to do a couple random verses, okay? Just, just to get this in here, I want to I just, because these are so good, I don't want to leave it out. Deuteronomy 21, this is just random, but I, I think it's worth mentioning. Look toward the end of the chapter. This is an amazing verse. Uh, just in relationship to the New Testament. So I'll stand up again here. It says here, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, uh, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man, that is a man hanging on a tree, is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I have to think that Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul, the, the, the persecutor, I think he would have, we know he knew this verse because he quotes the verse. Paul knew this verse. And I think when he was not a Christian yet, I think he took this verse as proof positive that Jesus was not the Messiah. Because it says, a man who's hanged on a tree, if you hang him on a tree, if he's hanged on a tree, he's cursed of God. The Messiah is not going to be cursed of God. So clearly he's an imposter. He's an imitator. He's a fake Christ. The fact that he was hanged dead on a tree on a cross is proof he's, a, he's not under God's blessing. He's cursed of God. He can't be the Messiah. I think that Saul used this verse. I'm, just, I mean, I'm, I'm using imagination here, okay? I don't have a verse that proves this. I'm guessing that Saul used a verse like this to prove Jesus is a fake. And that's why you get this in Acts. He says, I was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is a cursed man. But then you get this amazing New Testament verse after he's a Christian. This is one of the most precious verses in the Bible on the gospel, Galatians 3.13. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I have to imagine that Paul's understanding of this verse and how it connects to Jesus completely changed during those three days from Damascus. It went from proof Jesus was a fake because he was cursed of God to, oh my, he was cursed of God, but it was for us. And he was resurrected to prove that God's blessing is still on him. I think that was a revolutionary moment in Paul's theology. As I think Deuteronomy 21 played a crucial role based on how he quotes it in this text. So I think that's an amazing verse. Anything, that's just amazing, Greg. Amazing text on, oh, on Christ's well, death. Man. Okay. Amen that. Well, amen. Let's try to get to the very end here to the verse of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 26. We are, we're getting close. Deuteronomy 26. Let's look at verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments. Well, we've heard this before. This is a major point in Deuteronomy. And that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations. Remember, they're supposed to be a light to the, to the nations, high above all nations, that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. That's what's being held out. And then you get this, the last chapters of Deuteronomy. We're going to make this fast. Deuteronomy 27, let me look at verse 12. 27, 12. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. He mentions some of the tribes. Verse 13, these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, other tribes. Okay, I'm going to show you some pictures here. If you look at the screen, this is not a very high quality image. This is, <laughs> this is, this is not, not the greatest. But you can see the, the Mediterranean Sea in the back, and you've got sort of a digital representation of Mount Gerizim for blessings, Mount Ebal for curses. Let me show you a real picture of it today. Um, 
So there it is. There's, there's Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. And I, I just, again, I'm just throwing in some random things. If you zoom in to a closer picture, this really, this is kind of amazing. You zoom in closer, same mountains, uh, Gerizim and, and Ebal. You notice right here, this is where archaeologists think Jacob's well is. This is where Jesus had the conversation with the woman at the well. It's hard to prove that this is the right well, but there's good evidence. Even Don Carson admits this is probably the best guess as to where the well was. Mm. In the basement of this cathedral, this little church, there is a well that still works to this day. It's about 100 plus feet deep, and you, can, you, you shouldn't drink the water, they say, but you can still get water out of it. And it's, it, this well goes way, way, way back in church history, and people think it's the best guess as to where Jesus actually talked to the Samaritan woman. Well, you remember, she asked him, are we supposed to worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem on Mount Zion? And Jesus says, neither mountain. God wants you to worship him in spirit, not in a place. That's what Jesus says. But uh, what happened later was, because this is the mountain of blessing over here, Mount Gerizim, the, the northern Israel, when they split away, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they had their own way of worship, and it was apostate. It was not what God commanded. It was not right. They put their own golden calves in, in the temple here at Mount Gerizim, and that's where the woman at the well, she grew up with that, with that temple right here. That's the Samaritan temple, and she's going, which is it? Is it our temple or your temple? And Jesus says, well, it is salvation's of the Jews, so it is of the southern kingdom, but it's ultimately worshiping God by spirit. So that's all taking place as they speak of blessings here, curses here. It was, a, it was a dramatic visual display of the choice set before Israel. Will you choose obedience and blessing, or will you choose disobedience and curse? And it could not have been more memorable and vivid to have them shouting them across the valley here uh, in Shechem uh, at, when this occurs. All right, we are just about done um, Let's just read a couple of the curses and blessings, and we will we'll, we'll pray. So chapter 27. Here, here's just a sense of what you would hear from these two mountains. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord. Skip to verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say amen. Skip down to, verse, uh, to chapter 28. Uh, look at verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Verse 2, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of the livestock. Verse 5, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. You get the idea. Chapter 28, uh, let me skip ahead here. Chapter 30. The, the Lord predicts, and this is where we'll close, the Lord predicts that Israel will not be faithful to this covenant. He knows what's going to happen. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, so exile's coming, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And look at this, verse 5 and 6 are, are wonderful. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that's, that, that's the, ultimately the new covenant promise of the transformed heart that Ezekiel will later talk about. I think we're going to have to wrap up here. Our goal, again, will be to jump way ahead next Sunday. We're going to cover a bunch of books of the Bible quick, and then we'll get to 2 Samuel 7. But in the meantime, Greg, any closing thoughts, and then you can pray for us. You know, remember, guys, this is, it, in some ways, it might feel like, and we've used this phrase before, drinking from a fire hose. Like, this is a lot of information. Uh, Deuteronomy, some of you are like, okay, I need like a mental break now for about a week. Um, like, th this is a, 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 a rapid overview in, in view of the covenant that God is making. Like, the, the whole point of this is so that we understand the, the progress of God's plan of salvation in the Bible. Um, this covenant right here is so absolutely crucial to uh, helping us understand who Jesus is, what Jesus is going to do uh, in saving us. And so, yes, it can be a little overwhelming 
uh, in a format like this because, again, in two weeks we just went through the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, we could spend a year doing that if we really wanted to, to hunker down and do it. Uh, but the point is, is to help us so that as we read through the Old Testament, as we read through the Bible, we, we have some things that start to, 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 get, to latch on. We're reading, wait a minute, that, that's important. We, we heard about that. I remember that. And, you know, hopefully the notes you're able to take, um, you know, give you some markers so that as you're reading through, you can say, wait, wait a minute, I need to go back. That's what's going on here. I can make sense of what I'm reading here because I understood what was, what was being said here. So let it kind of serve as, as, as fuel, if you will, kind of serve as a, a reference point. Um, you know, as you're reading through scripture, it, the Deuter- what we read in Deuteronomy and, and previously that we've looked at, it, it, it's the only way you're going to make sense of what comes after. And so come back to this as a reference point. And it's one of those things, over time, these things start to sink in. Like, okay, like it's not like we figured this out in, in a week and all of a sudden we're, you know, we can talk about it like this. This is the fruit of a long time. Um, I know for both of us. And so don't, don't feel like you have to master this today. Like, you know, let it be something you come back to, to kind of refresh yourself on. Um, and over time, these things start to slide into place and all of a sudden, you don't have to intentionally think, oh, wait a minute, Deuteronomy, because it's already there. Okay, so let it let it kind of serve in that way. If you feel a little overwhelmed, some of you might be like, oh, yeah, I got I'm ready for a test now. You know, give it to me and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ace it right now. Um, you know, that might not be everybody in here. Um, so just, you know, take it as it is. Come back to it. And over time, you're going to see God use use the material from his word and the categories and all that stuff. And it's just going to continue to blow wide open all that you can see. In scripture. Yeah, and once we cover the first 10 or so minutes next week, we'll cover a whole bunch of books of the Bible. Then we're going to settle, spend most of the time on one chapter. Yeah. So ne- next week it'll be largely just one chapter, which will be, uh, that'll be nice. <laughs> so, yeah, Greg, can you pray for us? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Well, Lord, there's so much here. Um, and Lord, there's so much that is practical for us. So much that we can learn for our own Christian life. And yet, Lord, as we read, we know we cannot ultimately measure up to the standard of obedience that is called for here. We can't do it. If, if our life depends on our obedience, life is not what we expect. And we're thankful that at the very end, he talks about circumcising our hearts so that we may live. Life will come another way. Um, it is when you give us a new heart and you give us new life by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God according to the Gospel. Um, and so, Lord, help us rejoice in the new life that you give through the gospel. Um, And from that new life, Lord, you give us the ability to obey. Um, But Lord, may our obedience come from gratitude, from joy, from this new life. May we never have the thought that says somehow we earn your favor or we earn this life by our obedience, Lord, because that is not how we should think about it. So God, just uh, help us grow in our knowledge of Deuteronomy and all that it teaches and how that affects how we read everything else that we're going we're gonna to encounter in Scripture. Um, and Lord, please now just uh, prepare our hearts to hear and receive your word and to sing your praises. And we ask all this in Jesus.